Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Hello, friends. If you have happened to be listening to my podcast and we're waiting for part two of the creation ordinance of work. I, I said in that episode that it would be next week, and here it is two months later. I'm finally getting around to recording that episode. Um, man, I just can't say how quickly the time goes by. Sometimes the podcast just gets bumped to the bottom of the week, and then it goes to the next week and the next week. And It's not that I don't have good intentions to record. It's just sometimes life and ministry gets in the way. But we are back today. Um, I'm going to try to be better at recording these episodes. I know that it's a real blessing to y'all, and I want to make sure that we can be mutually encouraging to one another and have this opportunity to look at God's Word together. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's go ahead and get back in the mindset of looking at the creation ordinances. And um, you'll recall we've been doing this series for quite a while now, but we are now at the second to last creation ordinance, the ordinance of labor. And the ordinance of labor is found actually in Genesis chapter 2. And today we're going to be examining why the ordinance of labor is a good ordinance, why this is such a, a blessing to not just Christians or people who have a Judeo-Christian perspective, but why the ordin ordinance of labor is good for everybody. Here's what Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 have to say. Well, actually, I'm just going to start at verse 1. Thus, the heavens and earth were completed and all their hosts. And Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 comes after the first six days of creation as revealed in Genesis chapter 1. And then Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 says this, By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Okay? Now, this uh, right here, Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, discusses the ordinance of rest, but within this ordinance of rest, we find some important truths about the ordinance of labor. Okay? What is the goodness of labor. Why is labor good? Well, one of the reasons that labor is good is that God partook in it. God partook in the act of labor. He provided an example for us, and we should follow his example. Look at what the text says, verse 2. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. So when God completed his work, that means that he actually did work. He actually rested. And this is an important contrast that we're going to bring out next week when we look the ordinance of labor. I'm sorry, when we look at the ordinance of rest. In order to have an ordinance of rest, you must have an ordinance of work. And in order to have an ordinance of work, you must have an ordinance of rest. And so God, in his mercy to us, in his condescension to human ways of thinking and human ways of being, 
God rested on a specific day and he worked on other days. And this provides a great example for us and shows us that work is a good thing. If work was not a good thing, God would not have done work. Right? Because God is a holy God. He is a perfect God. He only does that which is in correlation or in correspondence or which comes out of the nature of his holiness. And so God would not have worked if work was not a good thing. And so we find that work for us is good because God did it and God gave us an example. Furthermore, work is good because there is a moral reason to work. There is a moral imperative behind this ordinance. If God says that working is morally right, then we should consider work to be a moral obligation. Let's look at a couple of texts that um, imply and directly state that work is a moral imperative. Work is a moral imperative. Exodus chapter 20, verse 9. Here's what the text says. Actually, we're going to start in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. What does God say about labor? Six days you shall labor and do all your work. There's a moral imperative there. You must labor. It is a requirement. It is a responsibility. It is a moral necessity for you to actually labor and work. And therefore, when we look at God's example, we see also that not only did God give us an example of what we should do, but he gave us a moral imperative that compels us to work and to labor. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3.12. 2 Thessalonians 3.12. Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, says this to those in the church. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. What is, what is Paul doing here? He is giving a moral obligation for believers to work. And he uses the strongest possible terms that he could use. He says, we command and exhort. And it's not just by his own authority. He says, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that means when you see that phrase, in the Lord Jesus Christ, that phrase, that phrase occurs in the book of Acts um, a lot of times when it comes to baptism. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Here we have, we don't have name of appearing, but we have a, a very similar construct in the Lord Jesus Christ. That means by the authority of the Master, Jesus Christ. So there is a moral obligation that every believer has to work and to work well and to work hard. So we find that there is 
a biblical motivation for labor in that God gave us an example, and his example is good. God also then gave us a moral command, and we, if we want to be pleasing to God, will obey his moral command. We find also in the scriptures that when we work properly, work brings satisfaction to the worker. When we work properly, when we work diligently, when we work according to the gifts and abilities that God has given us, it brings satisfaction to the worker. Let's take a look at Proverbs 31.13. Here in this passage, we find the example of the worthy woman. And what, what do we notice about the worthy woman? She is a diligent worker. And what happens? Uh, what, what's her attitude? She does her husband good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. There is a, a joy that comes from working and working well. So when you understand work properly, when you understand God's purpose in giving work and commanding work and being an example of work, there is delight that is found in laboring with one's hands. Another example of the goodness of work and the satisfaction that work brings is found in the book of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 3, 12 and following. Here's what King Solomon writes. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is a gift of God. Think about those verses. Think about the satisfaction that comes from a hard day's work. That satisfaction is a gift of God. That sense of pride, accomplishment, joy, um, sense of fulfillment, all of those things are a gift from God. And those feelings that we have inside ourselves are actually intrinsically put there by God we were created to feel these things. We were designed to feel these things as we follow the pattern that God laid out before us in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. As you practice the creation ordinance of labor, you will find rest in your labor. You will find satisfaction in your labor. Now, who are the people who maybe don't find satisfaction in, your la in their labor? Well, in, later on in the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon points out that those who are greedy, those who are wicked, those who can never be satisfied with what God's given them, those who have not learned contentment, these are the ones who never find satisfaction in their labor. They always want more. They always need uh, bigger and better. And they have no contentment because their soul is, has not learned to be content with what God has provided them. And so when we properly understand that work is not only a gift of God, but a command from God, we can have the appropriate satisfaction. We can have the appropriate joy. We can have the appropriate fulfillment that is brought about by work. And it doesn't matter what kind of work you do. Once again, if you go back to the first episode on this, it doesn't matter what kind of work you find to do. In fact, King Solomon 
elsewhere in the book of Ecclesiastes uh, writes that whatever your hand finds to do, do it to the best of your ability. All right? Do your work, uh, whatever it is, to the best of your ability. Work hard at it. This doesn't mean that you work at your job at a, and neglect your family or neglect your ministry responsibilities, but it means you do your best job when you are at your job. You do your best job when you are at your job. You're not goofing around. You're not uh, stealing from your boss by misusing his time or his resources. You are doing what God expects and requires of you. If you are a Christian, you should be known as one of the hardest workers and most competent and faithful workers in your company. Being the hardest worker doesn't mean that you work the most hours, of course. It means that you produce a lot of results within the hours that you have been assigned to work. You're doing a good job. Now, another thing that we can expect to receive from our work, and this is appropriate, is wages, right? We all know that one of the ways that we live in the 21st century is to earn a wage that will then pay for our housing, our shelter, our clothing, I'm sorry, our housing, our food, and our clothing. And also the wage pays for other things that we happen to need or other desires that we happen to have. Um, Work is the means to get wages. Work is the means to get wages. And Paul actually makes this point when he's talking about the doctrine of salvation. In Romans chapter 4, Paul is talking about how salvation is a free gift from God, not something that you can earn through your own acts of righteousness or through your own inherent goodness, okay? Here's what he says in Romans chapter 4, verse 4. To the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, that means a gift, but as what is due, okay? Wages are what is due the worker. And so you can expect to receive wages for the work that you do. This is another benefit to work. Um, In an agricultural society, the wages that you might earn might be the the crops that you grow or the animals that you take care of. Uh, Maybe you trade labor. You have a certain skill and your neighbor has a different skill and you trade labor and you each help each other out on projects. Those are the wages of your work. In the 21st century in America, we think of the wages of work as being whatever shows up on your paycheck at the end of your pay period. Whether your pay period is weekly or bi-weekly or monthly, whatever you earned that pay period, that's what shows up. So if you worked 48 hours, you would earn more on your paycheck than if you worked 40 hours. We understand that. It's a very basic concept, and yet it's a a concept that is very misunderstood and very overlooked. A worker is worthy of his wages. This is why some people negotiate for more money because they have higher skills, more value to the company, and some people do not have as much uh, higher income, or some people have a lower income. They do not have a high skill set. They do not have a lot of value to the company. They're important, don't get me wrong, but 
they're, they're more easily replaced than another more highly educated or highly skilled or highly experienced worker. This is why the longer you're in the workforce in a given industry, you tend to earn a higher wage because of your skill set. When you first start out in an industry, you get a low wage because there's not a lot of skills required to do that particular job or those jobs that you would do at the, at the bottom. But we have the opportunity to work and to work up and to advance, and that is a great blessing that we enjoy in America in particular. Now, as for Christians, our work is to be pleasing to Christ. Our work is to be pleasing to Christ. We must always bear this in mind. It is, it is great and excellent that God gave us an example of his own work in Genesis chapter 1. It is necessary that we have a moral obligation to work as given in Exodus chapter 20, verse 9, and 2 Thessalonians 3.12. But now what we are going to look to is kind of a, an intrinsic characteristic of work, something that um, is maybe difficult to pin down, but it is a strong motivating factor for why we should work, and that is that our work is to be pleasing to Jesus Christ. If we claim to be a Christian, if we call ourselves by the name of Jesus Christ, we say, I'm a Christian, I am a little Christ, then our work is to be pleasing to Christ. I think many of you probably know the next verse that I'm about to use, Colossians 3.23. It says this, whatever you do, do your work heartily. That word heartily means from the soul, from the very innermost part of your being. Do your work with the right motivation, with a level to do it excellently, or a desire to do it excellently. And you do it motivated by the fact that you're working for Christ rather than working for men. That's amazing. We as Christians are to be motivated in doing our work as if we are doing it to Christ rather than to men. And again, this goes back to what I said a little bit earlier that Christians should be well-known in the job force, well-known in the company for being some of the most efficient and effective workers over the average workday. It, it doesn't mean that you're maybe the most skilled. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are um, the most experienced. But it does mean that for your skill level and for your experience level, you will do quality work and you will do it abundantly. And we're going to work heartily from the soul because we are motivated to serve Christ and to please him. That's a great motivation for work. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't actually talk about some of the consequences of not working. We've talked about the goodness of work, the motivation to work, uh, the importance of work, what we can expect from our work. But we also need to look at the counter side of this, which is what happens if we don't work? And God is very, very opinionated about what should happen to people if they don't work. And now I would suggest to you that if you were to take these uh, things that I'm about to read from you, these truths that I'm about to read from you from the scriptures, and you would give them to, let's say, a a talk show host today in America, um, a politician 
maybe even, let's say, a presidential candidate, if you gave these talking points to a presidential candidate and said, here's what should happen to people who are unwilling to work, there would be an incredible amount of backlash against it. Why? Because the satanic mind or those people who are controlled by the satanic world system are absolutely opposed to the ordinances of God and they don't understand the ordinances of God, and they want to reject the ordinance of God and undo the ordinance of God and say, well, we can do it better than what God said. So know this, while these truths are true, it is unlikely that they would actually be implemented in society due to the influence that Satan has over people and over society at large. Now, I would say that historically speaking, these principles were applied to people. These truths that we're about to discuss were put into practice in days gone by. But the modern 21st century thinker, who is basically a postmodern thinker who believes that truth is relevant and that the only truth that matters is your truth, this thinker could not imagine a scenario in which you would put these truths into practice because it would be cruel and unusual and it would reduce people to victimhood status when in reality these consequences that come from the word of god are designed to motivate individuals to actually practice work if these consequences were implemented people would actually go back to work they would do what the creation ordinance says they should do. Or rather, let's put it this way, they would do what God says they should do. Because again, the creation ordinances are for all people of all time, not just Christians, not just Jews, not just people who happen to have a Judeo-Christian perspective. All right, what are they? Well, one of the consequences of not working is that you should not eat. Let's take a look at 2 Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. That's pretty plain. That's very straightforward. If we were to implement that in our society today, it would mean that anybody who was unwilling to work would not be able to receive welfare, food stamps, any government assistance. They would have to find some type of job to do in order to eat. But as it stands currently, we do have many welfare programs. We have many food stamp programs. We have all kinds of different programs that are set up in such a way that it keeps people from actually working, but it feeds them enough so that they're satisfied. It feeds them enough so that they're satisfied. And I don't want to get into a political discussion. There's a way that you could help somebody with food stamps and still allow them to work, require them to work. 24 hours a week, 32 hours a week, maybe even 40 hours a week, and then supplement that income with some food stamps. But right now, the way a lot of welfare works is, hey, I can't work. I'm disabled. Uh, I have this other issue in my life. Something's going on. I can't work, and therefore, I just need a handout, and you get handouts. If we implemented Paul's words here, if somebody is not willing to work, then they should not eat. Now. Interestingly, not being willing to work leads to other areas of 
problems in a person's life. So if you're not willing to work, it also leads to this. Verse 11, we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all and acting like busybodies. The reality is that if you don't work, you have a lot of energy. And what are you going to do with that energy? You're going to get it out some way. Paul says that when you're not working, you're tempted to lead an undisciplined life. That means you're living a life that is in tune with a lot of the sensual pleasures that are, that are wicked desires. We give in to those desires. We have energy for those desires. Uh, you want to know why there's a lot of gang problems in big cities? Because young men have been given basically welfare checks, and they have no cause to go to work, no reason to go to work, but they have all this energy. So what are they going to do? They're going to have territorial fights. I know this isn't a popular view. I'm sure that not every young man falls in this category. I'm making a generalization. I get that. But if you look at why uh, young men join gangs and why they get out of gangs, one of them is camaraderie. One of them is lack of fathership. One of them is they have resources without having to do any work. And when you have resources that can keep you fed and clothed without having to do any labor, then you have extra energy to do all kinds of other activities. Um, Paul says that they act like busybodies. And, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of descriptions that you could pull out of that. What is a busybody? Somebody who just is busy doing all kinds of other things besides the right thing. That's a good definition. Somebody who's doing all kinds of things but the right thing. So if you don't work, it leads to a lack of discipline in other areas of your life. Finally, the ultimate consequence is poverty. You can only sustain handouts for so long. You can only sustain not working for so long. There is poverty that comes at the result of not working. Proverbs 10.4. Proverbs 10.4. A lazy hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. See, if you're lazy and you don't work, it results in poverty. But if you are diligent, if you work hard, it makes rich. And, and I think we need to keep in mind that, you know, the average American who is in poverty is still richer, you know, than, than two-thirds or, or, or 75% of the world's population. The average American who basically is living in poverty, according to the federal government definition of poverty, is actually quite wealthy. And a lot of these who are living in so-called poverty are actually receiving some type of government aid and assistance and handouts. So our government is actually enriching people to not work. This is, this is a sad state of affairs that we have to deal with. One of the great markers of wealth is home ownership. And being able to pass your home from one generation to the next. Or if it's not the actual home, it's the income or the, the, the value of that home is then passed from one generation to the next. And unfortunately, there's a, a huge segment of the American population that is stuck in uh, living in rentals. They're living in rentals because they, they have a government-subsidized house, so they're getting either reduced or free housing. 
and they're getting food stamps and they're not actually able to get ahead in life. They'll never gain generational wealth because they're using up what very few resources they have. They've not been trained to work. And so they have a slack hand and it causes generational poverty. It causes individual poverty and it contributes to generational poverty. But if you're diligent, if you work hard and you just take care of your business, honestly, most people can afford uh, over their lifetime to buy a house, to have a savings, and then to pass that on to their children and to their, their children's children. That's true wealth creation. That's generational wealth. All right, my friends, I hope this has given you some good food for thought and some good motivation to get out and work hard. Work at what God has gifted you to do. Do your very best. Be pleasing to Christ. I pray that you are blessed by these words and challenged by these truths. May you be strengthened to put these into practice by the power of the Holy Spirit.